This morning we continue in our exposition of this book, Epistle to the Hebrews, and we come uh, to the end of chapter 8. We'll be considering a, a larger portion this morning, verse 8 to verse 13, as the whole of it uh, hold, holds together. Uh, a large portion of it, as you'll note, is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. So we continue in our study of this and looking to the Lord for his help. We'll consider verses 8 to 13. It begins in verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life and his ministry, uh, his death and burial, his resurrection, ascension, and his session at the right hand of the majesty on high, all of that form the hinge of history. Uh, the eternal Son of God being made flesh and coming in the fullness of time. In doing so, he, he brought with him the inauguration of a new covenant, a new covenant that he himself has established. And having inaugurated it, that new covenant continues to the present hour, uh, which we stand in the midst of and enjoy. And ultimately, it will be consummated and reach its climax and completion on the last day and all that follows in the glory uh, that is to come. And so you open your Bibles and you see pastors, for example, referred to in the New Testament as ministers of the new covenant. Or you turn to ordinances, like in uh, Jesus' words in the Gospels, which Paul quotes to the Corinthians, ordinances like the Lord's Supper, and it's called uh, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Right? There are these characteristics of those who belong uh, to a new covenant era. And here we see that this is not something that just falls entirely out of heaven, but had it in fact been predicted, that God had foretold that this was in route and on the way in the days of Jeremiah and, and other prophets. And so Jeremiah, speaking uh, by way of prophecy under the inspiration of God, tells and foretells of the coming of this new covenant. And it is that section in Jeremiah 31, as we've mentioned, that the author to the Hebrews then cites in chapter 8. So it'd be helpful, I think, just to uh, briefly orient ourselves in terms of context. And first of all, very briefly, something about the context of this passage that's quoted in Jeremiah chapter 31. You'll remember Jeremiah's prophesying uh, during uh, the time when Judah is being taken into the Babylonian exile, being hauled off by the Chaldeans, and the Lord is chastening them and rebuking them under Jeremiah's ministry for their sins. But he doesn't leave it there. He also, he also intermixes it with, with hope and encouragement uh, to them. And that includes a word that God brings repeatedly about the restoration of Judah, that the exile is not uh, the, the, the new normal that is final, but that there's something that is to follow it. There's a restoration. And so he gives them encouragement. And in the context of Jeremiah 31, he's supplying that encouragement. It's one of the instances. And he's saying, listen, uh, among other things, for your encouragement, I, I am bringing a new covenant. And it is, it is a new covenant, which at first pass wouldn't necessarily be great news, right? They've had covenants uh, already, which they've broken and which they've suffered the curses of. But he says this covenant, this new covenant, is not going to end in failure. And so he, 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 he bolsters their hearts with the revelation of this. And so if you look at chapter 31 of Jeremiah, there's really kind of a section before and a section after the one that, that we have quoted here in Hebrews 8. In Jeremiah 31, verses 27 to 30, the Lord gives them the encouragement about his future, uh, the future planting of God's people in the land. So he's saying, there's, there's a time coming when I'm going to plant my people in the land. And then, of course, in this section, verses 31 to 37, he says, in addition, I'm going to give my people a new covenant that will not end. And then in the section following, verses 38 to 40, he speaks about the future permanence of the holy city. That there is 
a future permanence to the holy city that the Lord will erect. And all three of these things actually stand together in Jeremiah's mind, in the mind of the, of the, the people of Judah when they received it. These things all were, were, were held together. And really, they were building on expectations that had already been set far before the days of Moses and so on. And they point forward to the, the culmination of what God will do, even a new heavens and a new earth that come out of this, this new covenant, the full restoration and establishment of the new Jerusalem uh, for the glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's something of the context of Jeremiah. You come back now to Hebrews 8, and I'm not going to repeat much because we've been working through this for, for quite some time now, but you'll remember that there is a change that's taken place. And the Lord Jesus and his coming comes as the great high priest, and he supersedes what we find in Aaron. He's after a different order, the order of Melchizedek. He has a greater and more expansive and glorious ministry. He's both the priest and the sacrifice that is being offered. And all of that has been teaching us that in the Old Testament, there was anticipation, anticipation of Christ's coming and of his work and all that he would do. Whereas the New Testament supplies the fulfillment of all that had been foretold uh, to us. And so the Old Testament covenants were glorious, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, but the new covenant is more glorious, as 2 Corinthians 3 uh, tells us. And so here he's referring to that covenant that he made when he brought them out of Egypt, that is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant during the time of Moses. And I'll remind you briefly that Mosaic covenant is a part of the covenant of grace. The whole context for it was redemption, being brought out of Egypt and the way in which that's used as a picture of being delivered from bondage and carried through a wilderness to the promised land and so on. But the content of the covenant is also brimming with grace. Right? The laws and the institutions and the ordinances, these ceremonial um, parts that were a part of the Mosaic Covenant are very colorful, graphic pictures of the gospel. They're, they're depicting who Christ is and what Christ would accomplish in his atoning sacrifice. So that we can refer to books like Leviticus, as I like to do, as the gospel according to Leviticus. Right? It's in shadows. And it's in types and it's in pictures and symbols. But the meaning of all of those is filled with gospel content. So the Mosaic Covenant is part of this unfolding uh, covenant of, of grace. But when we come to the New Covenant, as we've been learning in Hebrews, all of the ceremonies have expired, right? They've, they've, uh, they've fulfilled their purpose. The picture books put away, the symbols, the types, the shadows have all fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're replaced with the realities that they could only signify. And so here in Hebrews 8, especially in the opening parts of this chapter, we've seen a transition from an earthly orientation to a heavenly orientation. Our priest is in the sanctuary. It's not an earthly sanctuary. It's a heavenly sanctuary. So he himself is carrying out his work in heaven itself. And that's reflected in, as we've seen in New Testament, the simplicity and purity of New Testament worship. So our text this morning is sandwiched in between this heavenly orientation. In verse 2, we saw that Christ is a minister of a, of the tr of a sanctuary that is the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, verse 5 the old was an example and shadow of heavenly things. Christ has the heavenly things. That's tied to verses 6 and 7, which we looked at last week. Christ as the mediator of a new covenant. And then I say sandwiched because after this, we find the same sorts of themes. In chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, speaking of the old as a figure that was to come. And then in verse 11, but Christ is the one who enters into the good things that are to come. Again, it's a better and more perfect uh, tabernacle. You go down to verse 15. He's the mediator of a New Testament. And then we have, we have an expl explanation of what that means. 
And then in verses 23 and 24, he says, those patterns of things in the heavens are now replaced with the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which were figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So this heavenly orientation is, is um, on either side of our, our passage. Our hearts are to be in heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ is. So the context of Jeremiah, the context of Hebrews, thirdly, very briefly, and this is way longer introduction than normal, our own context. So we, we come to this passage with our own context, right? Our own situation in the church at large, questions, debates, and so on and so forth. And that context raises uh, questions about the character of this new covenant. And this is especially true with regards in this passage to our Reformed Baptist friends, whom we love and esteem in the Lord very much, and from whom we have a great deal to learn in many respects, but who differ with us on the question of the subjects of baptism, on who is to be baptized, on, on the biblical mandate and obligation to give baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant uh, to our children. So there's the Reformed Baptist and then really an, a more extreme version of, of that same principle or idea in what is now called New Covenant Theology. So both of those are kind of taking their cue from the same source. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. At the end of the day, you know, many of us were, uh, many of us like myself, grew up credo-baptists, right? Believed in believer's baptism. And it was, it was only under the constraints of studying the scriptures that we were forced in submission to yield to the Lord and his word in terms of the biblical doctrine uh, regarding infant baptism. So what happens in terms of the discussions, amiable discussions with our Reformed Baptist brethren and even more with the New Covenant people, the, um, is that the, 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 there's all this biblical data, which is absolutely overwhelming and irrefutable regarding the obligation of the New Covenant. And at the end of the day, they're forced to retreat primarily to this one last text. And they take their stand here. And so this section of Hebrews 8 and, and Jeremiah 31 provide the classic text, the primary text, the core text, for their rejection of the biblical doctrine of, of infant baptism. Here is, as it were, their, their last stand. And here's why. Because they say, look at the character of the new covenant. The Lord tells us that the new covenant, as distinguished from the old covenant, is going to be um, one in which the covenant isn't broken. So in the Old Testament, the covenant's broken all the time. But what a wonderful glory in the new covenant, because in the new covenant, no longer is that covenant breakable, right? It's the idea that the, the covenant is only with the elect. And, and really, in, in all of their ideas, that's, that's the same thing. And so we come to the new covenant, and here the Lord's established this. Unlike the old, it's not, it's not breakable anymore. And, and, and yet the those who believe in baptism say, well, our children are brought into the covenant and they're given privileges in the covenant and in all the things that are entailed in that, but they have to keep covenant and they could break the covenant through unbelief and disobedience. They're saying, well, see, that's out of keeping with the character of the new covenant. And then they look at this passage and say, look, it says that the new covenant will be internalized. Old Testament, you know, that it's all external. There's a lot of external. And then there's a remnant in the midst of that. In the new covenant, it's beautiful because now the covenant is brought internally to every uh, one that's in the covenant. And, and furthermore, that's extended universally to all of God's people so that, so that all that are in the covenant have this living reality, right? Again, the idea is that the covenant is equated uh, with, with, with election. And then furthermore, you know, that the, the forgiveness of sins is given to all those in the new covenant. Well, in both of these cases, you know, those who are Presbyterian are saying, well, um, yeah, there's, the, there's an, a, an outward administration of the covenant, and then, but you have to have the inward reality. They're saying, no, the new covenant is having the inward reality, and that this only belongs to those who are in a state of grace. And then furthermore, all who are in the covenant are forgiven their sins. You can't say that there are people in the covenant 
like children that are baptized, who are unconverted thus, and whose sins aren't forgiven. Right? This is out of accord with the nature of the, new, the character of the new covenant. So you can appreciate it. You can see uh, where, they're, where they're coming from uh, with, with regards to all of that. So we come to this text, and, 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 and in one way, we actually agree with what they say. We agree with the, the, the basic uh, tenor of what this passage is saying. I, that's what I mean. That what this passage means, um, we agree with uh, on the surface. The question is when that comes to pass, when this text actually comes to pass. And we, we, we need to recognize that the new covenant consists of an inauguration, which takes place in the coming of Jesus Christ, the continuance of the new covenant in which we live, but then also the climax and culmination of that covenant at the end of time, where the totality of all the blessings of the new covenant are provided. And those, that totality is not given at its inauguration, but at its culmination and at its, at its climax. And so this heavenly orientation turns to what the mediator of the covenant secures completely and delivers fully in heaven, in, in glory itself. Now, I want to prove that to you, which I believe with the Lord's help we can do from this text, that, that, the, that, the new, that this description of the new covenant is a description of its consummation in heaven and in, in glory. This is, the sermon leans a little more than ordinary in the direction of the didactic, and necessarily so. But we need to ask ourselves, how is the new covenant like and dislike the old covenant? And we note three things here, that the new covenant includes yeah, these three, three components in our text. First of all, it is fully described as fully and finally unbreakable. So verses 8 and 9, for finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So first of all, fully and finally unbreakable. Notice the language uh, in verse 8 and 9. The Lord says, finding fault with them. He's finding fault with his people, why, verse 9, toward the end, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not. So the problem is the people. And the problem is that God's covenant is being broken in this description of the Old Testament. Now, you'll notice here a point of continuity, however, because it's a description of a covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah. And again in verse 10, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And so this is interesting because the Lord is actually describing in terms of continuity spanning over these two eras, the same people, right? The same church. As we come into the new covenant, of course, it is vastly expanded with the incorporation and inclusion of Gentile people into its ranks, which swell with, with Gentile people. But it is the same people that this new covenant is being made with, as, as with the old. There's one church in both uh, testaments. And so he said, but he says here that the new covenant is not in, not in accord uh, to the covenant when they came out of Egypt in this respect, that they... They broke it. And so the new covenant results in an inability for God's people to break it anymore. The new covenant does result in an inability for God's people to break it anymore. Now, I want to draw a couple of things to your attention. The, the reference in our text is to Moses, the Mosaic covenant. You know, you know. All of the warnings about covenant breaking in the Old Testament, the descriptions that God gives of, of covenant breaking, his chastisement uh, uh, for their covenant breaking, and so on. Right? That covenant breaking came as a result of unbelief and the fruit of it, which was disobedience. So everywhere it's the same. Their unbelief, 
gives fruit to, to disobedience, and they thereby break the covenant. But this is not actually something unique to the Mosaic Covenant. It's actually characteristic of all of the Old Testament covenants and the unfolding of the covenant of grace. We see it with, with Noah, right? Noah's son, Cain, is cursed. And then you have the Lord declaring that, that capital punishment will be given to murders and, and so on. You have in, Ab- in the Abrahamic covenant, in that glorious passage in, 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 in uh, Genesis 17, he says, whoever doesn't circumcise his, his children breaks my covenant. So in the Abrahamic covenant, there's breaking of the covenant. We can multiply uh, texts with regards to this. Obviously, it's true with regards to Moses, and you see it in the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and so on. It was also true of the Davidic covenant. There was covenant breaking there. I mean, the most obvious one for us who sing the Psalms is Psalm 89, where within the context of the Davidic covenant, that era, the Lord is warning about their breaking covenant. And he tells David that your seed will sit upon my throat if they keep and follow my commandments and so on, which they don't. And so it's actually this covenant breaking is characteristic of all of the biblical covenants, which are unfolding the covenant of of grace. So the question is, um, you know, in each of those, you have both promise and duty. In each of those, you have blessing and curse. It's a characteristic of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament as a whole. So the question is, how does that, how does that relate to the change described in our text? Right? Is this descriptive of the inauguration of the covenant, new covenant, in the coming of Jesus Christ and our continuance in it at present? And the answer from Scripture is no. The answer in Scripture is that this is descriptive of the culmination, the consummation, the climax at the end of time. Now, it's important that we see this biblically, that we are persuaded from the Scriptures themselves. This is important for our young people. You have lots of friends, which we encourage, fellowship and so on, with with other people. And in your interface with those of Baptist persuasion, you need to understand the biblical arguments in terms of rightly dividing the word of truth so that we're sure that we're holding fast to the truth. We don't want, whether we're Baptist or Presbyterian, merely holding to tradition or what we're accustomed to, but what the Bible says. So the answer to whether this is true in the present, that the covenant is unbreakable, the answer is no. And we have to look at the scripture. And your best best, uh, first step is to look at the book of Hebrews itself. Does Hebrews tell us anything about this question that will shed light? Because obviously the the passage here in chapter 8 has got to dovetail with whatever we find elsewhere. And so I would direct your attention to chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, which all by itself should be enough to slam shut this door. Chapter 10, verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Notice the parallel again with the Mosaic Covenant. Of how much sorer punishment, it's worse, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. For we know him that saith, vengeance belongeth to me, and so on. So what's this telling us? This is a description. It's, there's a comparison with Moses. And he actually argues from the lesser to the greater. He says it's even more severe punishment in the new covenant than in the, the old covenant. And you'll, you'll notice here that the three things mentioned, the Son of God, the blood of the covenant, and the spirit of grace are all features of the new covenant. These are all features of the new covenant. And he's saying that those who have been sanctified, set apart in this covenant, are breaking it, right? They're they're trampling underfoot and counting the blood of the covenant an unholy unholy thing. And so it is clear as crystal that within the current context, within the new covenant, that covenant is breakable. That, that until Christ's second coming, as I'm going to argue, it is possible for those in the new covenant 
to break the new covenant. But there's, there's, there's more than just the parallel between Moses and the new covenant here. Notice that at, at the end of verse 30, he says, uh, at the end of verse 30, he says, saith the Lord, and again, the Lord shall judge his people. Interesting. Very interesting. Why? Because he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 26. He's quoting from the Mosaic Covenant, and he's applying the warning that was given under the Mosaic Covenant to those within the New Covenant situation. God will judge. Right, so this is all reinforcing this. Then we turn, of course, from Hebrews, and we have to speed up here. Uh, we turn from Hebrews to the New Testament at large, and what do we find You know, after Christ's ascension? We find examples, Ananias and Sapphira, who break covenant and are killed by the Lord in church in, in Acts 5. You come to the, 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 the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, and he's saying, there are those who are taking the sign and seal of the covenant, and eating it unworthily, and they're getting sick and dying because of their unbelief, disobedience, and so on and so forth. There's, there's the, the judgment or curses of the covenant that are being brought upon them. You go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 2 and 3, when the church, the Christ's word to the seven churches, what is he saying? He's saying, you're walking in unbelief, you're walking in disobedience, I'm going to unchurch you. I'm going to rip up your, your, your lampstand and take it away, and he calls them to repentance and so, so on and so forth. And then if that's not enough, we can multiply all the New Testament warnings of apostasy, like we saw in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to, to 8, right? The warnings, not of those who are truly converted, losing their salvation, but those within the visible church, self-consciously repudiating the true religion and walking away from it in unbelief and disobedience and breaking covenant with the Lord, right? Those those New Testament warnings can be multiplied. And so the point here, at least uh, I'm trying to reinforce infant baptism, is and the possibility that that includes of breaking covenant is not only not out of step with the new covenant, it is perfectly planted in the center of the new covenant and the character and nature of the new covenant. So if that's true, and it is true, then, then what are we to make of this? And the answer, as I've said, is that it's describing the, the coming totality, the, the culmination and climax of this new covenant. It's been inaugurated. We're in the midst of it. But there's the, he's underlining the glory of its consummation in the new heavens and new earth, where the new covenant has its full expression, and where all of the blessings of all of the redemption and salvation that God has secured for us are made manifest. The Lord is promised that in the new covenant, he will renew and perfect that covenant bond and that it will never, ever, ever be broken again. That when we come into that holy city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, when we come into the glory of heaven, we come into a place and among a people where the covenant of grace will never be broken again, can never be broken again. And there's something absolutely glorious about that, something heartwarming about that, something that should stir our affections and longing for the Lord and setting our minds on things above and so on. So first of all, it's fully and finally unbreakable. Secondly, it is fully and finally internalized for all God's people, universally, verses 10 and 11, by the which we will, uh, excuse me, uh, verses 10 and 11, for, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and, will, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall teach every man, and shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. There's really two components here, aren't there? In verse 10, he's speaking about the internalizing of the law. And, and in verse 11, he's speaking about the fact that this will be true of all God's people. It will be true universally for all of the Lord's people. 
you'll, you'll notice here, again, in terms of a point of continuity, it's the same promise. Right, note in, at the end of verse 10, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. This is the nugget, the heart of what the covenant of grace is. And this is what we find multiplied dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Abrahamic covenant, you know, in Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, in all the prophets, in the Psalms, and so on. And it is what's descriptive of the new covenant, this same core promise. I will be a God to you and you will be my people. And you'll note that this promise reaches through the whole period of the new covenant to its culmination. What do we read in Revelation 21 when the people of God come to heaven? In Revelation 21 verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Right? It stretches all the way to the end, this this same promise. You'll also notice in verse 10 that it's the same law. So this is a word to those who, not our Reformed Baptists, who, who believe in the enduring uh, relevance of the moral law of God, but the New Covenant people, it's the same law, the same obligation, right? He's saying, I'm going to put my laws into their heart and into their, into their mind. It's not a new law. God's not getting rid of the Ten Commandments. He's not getting rid of that, that Old Testament law. It's the same one that is being deeply implanted and internalized within the, the hearts of, of his people. But you can appreciate how, how Baptists would say, look, you know, Old Testament was external. Do you see it? The New Testament, it's internal. And it, you know, the, so in the, in the New Testament, the church is, is the church of believers. Those who are members in the church are those who are believers. And so only believers should receive, you know, baptism in terms of entrance into the church. You know, in the past it was mixed and there was a remnant. But now the glory of the new covenant is that, that we'll all know the Lord from the least to, to the greatest. We won't need to be taught these things anymore. Now, a couple of things on this, more than a couple. Uh, first of all, we, we recognize that for Adam in the garden, the law of God was written on his heart. So this is a point to, 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 that needs to be made. That the law being on the heart is actually part of the constitution of mankind. It's part of the constitution of what it means to be a human person. Because there is, in part, this law stamped upon their hearts. And I can t if we had time, we could take you through the Old Testament on this. But for the sake of, of brevity, look at, um, at Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 where we're told, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So he's saying that, look, the Lord has stamped his law on the conscience of mankind so that the Gentiles who don't have the law are still sinning in the same way as the Jews who do have it and violating uh, God's, God's holy law. And that's why in chapter 1 of Romans, they're doing that which is out of accord with nature. Right? They're doing something that is against nature in their sexual perversions and so on. Same sin, though, as, as the Jews. Same, same law. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, with regards to believers and, and the, in the church in the Old Testament, they were called to internalize the law. And indeed, they were promised that God would put the law deeply embedded within their own hearts and were given in instances of them actually achieving this in part. So quickly, you know, the Lord says in places like Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, you need your heart circumcised, right? You have that repeated in chapter 30 and, other, and elsewhere. But then he tells them of their failure. He said in Jeremiah 4, he's saying your heart's not circumcised. You haven't taken these things and internalized them. In Deuteronomy 30, it's actually the promise. God is saying, I will circumcise your heart. And then you think in terms of the law 
the content of the law itself. We sing about it in, in Psalm 19, where the word of God, the law of God, is found within the hearts of his Old Testament believing people. Psalm 50, he desires truth in the inward parts for his people. Psalm 119, you know, the young man is to hide the word of God, the law of God in his heart that he might not sin against God. And we, we see evidence of those who say they had that in Psalm 40 and in Psalm 119, and we could multiply instances. So it was in part the case in, in the Old, Old Testament. So just noting continuity. The other element here is the, and this is more significant then, given what I've just said, is the fact that it's universal. That for all of God's people, we have the, the embedding of the law of God in the filling the, the, the soul of the believer. And here it's saying that that's true of all the people of the Lord. No, they shall not teach every man his neighbor. Know the Lord. All shall know me from the greatest unto the least. Right? So no more remnant, if you will. So how does this relate to the change described in our text? How is it descriptive of the present unfolding of, of the new covenant? Well, you, you recognize, of course, that the New Testament tells us right now the need to continue to internalize the law and, and word of God. Right? It speaks in Romans 12 about the need of the renewing of our mind. Ephesians 4 gives us a whole long description of what that entails in terms of the transformation of our, our minds and our lives. We're, we're told that you know, we're doing battle in 2 Corinthians 10, and it's, it's battle that's waged on the, on the battlefield of the mind, having to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, these strongholds of thought, and so on. And we could give many other examples. There's a continued need to internalize God's word and his, his law. And so in the present circumstances, it's still mixed. It hasn't been brought to its fullness where, where that law is, is fully and completely embedded within our souls and filling our souls and, and our, our lives. How much, how much more with regards to this idea of it being universalized, that all the Lord's people will reach this? Is it true in the present context of the new covenant that we no longer need anyone to teach us or a man as neighbor and brother to know the Lord? Is it true that in the coming of the new covenant, the present teachers are disposed of and so on and so forth? Quite to the contrary. Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach, right? He sends them to teach all the whole world and baptize them in the, in the triune name. You, you think of how in the, in the New Testament itself, we're told in Ephesians 4, the Lord, the ascended Christ, has appointed apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of God's people, right? We look at the pastoral epistles, and there are offices that he's given that include preaching and teaching and so on uh, for the edification of, of the Lord's people. Indeed, the whole book of Acts is chapter after chapter description of preaching and teaching, so is it true in the current context that we no longer need teachers and to be taught? And the answer is no, we do need it. The Lord has provided that in the present context. So how do we understand this? We understand it in terms of this being descriptive of the culmination and consummation of the covenant of grace. In glory, the people of God will be fully conformed inside out to the law of God and to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully and completely. There will be no more sin, right? There'll be a deep, comprehensive internalization of all that God's law describes. And it will be true of all of the church of God in heaven. It is not until Christ returns that that will be the case. It's not until Christ comes and separates the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep. Then, and only then, will there be one united, unmixed body who are all 
recipients from the least to the greatest of these blessings. There'll no longer be a remnant within them, but the whole body will be comprised of only the elect people of God. And we will no longer be thinking in terms of, you know, one man teaches brother or, or neighbor, but rather there will no longer be intermediaries. We'll no longer have ministers that are sent and missionaries and so on and so forth. Because now we'll move from faith to sight and we'll behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ with resurrected bodies, perfected souls, and we'll be taught of God himself in receiving from him all of the revelation of what that glory entails. Until then, until that culmination, the church of God and those within the outward administration of the covenant are mixed. And infant baptism is completely in keeping with the character of that new covenant. But we look with a sense of anticipation. What will it be? You know, now we hear the law, we read the law, we meditate upon it day and night. We know something of the work of the Spirit enabling us to run in the commandments of God. But what will it be like? when our will is perfectly conformed to his will, our thoughts to his thoughts, our affections to his affections, where everything in our soul is stamped with sinless perfection and conformity to God's will. What will it be like when we look upon the host of heaven and every last soul has a share with us in those things, right? This is showing the true glory that the Lord has provided. The mediator of the covenant is delivered for us. In, in the consummation of that covenant. Until then, we have pastors and teachers, and we have the law in our hearts in part, but not in its totality. Thirdly, and I'll be brief, fully and finally forgiven, verses 12 and 13, fully and finally forgiven. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Here we're told all of the sins of all of God's people will be fully, finally, and forever forgiven by him. The Lord will be true. And, and so the, the question comes, you know, how, how is this true of, of of the new covenant, right? How is this true of the church? Because it's saying everybody's going to be saved. Everybody in the new covenant is converted, is saved, is regenerated, is washed from their sins, and so on and so forth. Hence, only those that are in the covenant, in the new covenant, are uh, the elect. That's, that's the way the, the idea goes. Now, again, following the pattern on these first two uh, points, Old Testament believers, of course, were recipients of forgiveness. I mean, do, do we need to even highlight or underline that, right? We, we have Psalm 51. We have really the Lord's declaration to Moses that he is a God of long-suffering and mercy and goodness and how he delights in mercy and in the law itself. And in, in the whole of the Old Testament, we see this theme of Old Testament believers being forgiven of their sins. And we come into the New Testament, into the New Covenant, and there, there's a continued need for forgiveness, right? There's a continued need. If we say that we haven't sinned, we, we make God a liar, John says in 1 John. We deny his word. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the current climate context, we keep sinning and we keep receiving in the Lord's mercy his, his forgiveness. One difference, of course, in the context of Hebrews 8 is that all of the Old Testament ceremonies have been fulfilled. All that ritual purification which was tied uh, to the ordinances of the Old Testament, all that has been put away. And in the New Covenant, as you see in chapter 10, verse 18, it is no longer needed. We no longer need an offering for sin. And so here the Lord, what, what Moses couldn't do, the Lord Jesus Christ could do. 
You think of Hebrews 8, for example, verses 3 and 4, for the law, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the law, but after the spirit. So the Lord Jesus has come in order to secure this full and free forgiveness of, of sins. We need mercy and we need the Lord to save us. I should also note here, if I can squeeze it in briefly, in thinking about the nature of the covenant and who constitutes the membership of that covenant, whether it's just those who are regenerate or is it the body as a whole, you know, this, this, this is built upon, the biblical answer is built in part upon the household principle. And it's interesting that Jeremiah in the next chapter, chapter 32, verse 39 goes on to say, the promise I'm giving you in the glory of what's to come is for you and for your children. And that coupled with, John, with Genesis 17 and Peter getting up in the era of the new covenant at Pentecost at Acts 2 and telling them, look, you need to repent and turn to the Lord and be baptized. And the promises I'm proclaiming to you are to you and your children. The si therefore, the signs and seals of that covenant are to you and your children. So, so when you come to the epistles, of course, the children are included. Of course, they are. He's not just writing to believers, right? He's in Colossians and in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4 and so on. He addresses the children individually as members of what are described saints at the beginning of the, of the book. Those who are part of that visible uh, body. We, we, of course, when you come to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, he says that the unbelieving spouse and children, because of their relationship to the, uh, to the believer, are sanctified, are made federally holy, are given privileges uh, within that association, right? The, these things are, of course, the case. And is it, is it true that we're mixed or, or not? Of course, we're mixed. You think of Genesis, the end of, of Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And the circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. That internal requirement in the old is still true in the new. And there's a mix within the body of, of, of the Lord's people in the meantime. So he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or whether you're reprobate. We need self-examination. We need dis spiritual discrimination. We recognize that the, those within the administration of the covenant and visible church are a mixed body in the new covenant. And everything that we read in the epistles demonstrates that the apostle is approaching the new, the new covenant church as a mixed body. You know, John says something the same, doesn't he, when he... First John 2, and he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that in order that they might make manifest that they were not of us. The church is mixed. There are things as, such as apostasy and covenant breaking and so on and so forth. But the point here is that in the consummation of this new covenant, we have the full and final forgiveness of all of the elect. Indeed, we have a condition in heaven where every single believer is not able to sin any longer. They love perfectly the Lord. And all the sins have been forever taken away from them, from inside them, removed from them, so that there is in terms of all that are found in heaven and eternal salvation. Every last person there is saved and they are saved eternally. No exceptions. The whole, the whole company, the whole body consists in heaven of those who have been forgiven of their sins and whose sins will never be remembered anymore.
Well, to bring this to to a conclusion, we can't misinterpret this passage, which is referring to the eternal kingdom and the consummation of the new covenant as if it were pertaining to the period of pilgrimage, to the inauguration and continuance of the new covenant at the present time. The point is that this is a description of the climactic nature of the new covenant within the context of a relative contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And all that the mediator of the covenant has come to secure, the believer will come into the full and exhaustive possession of on the last day in the glory that is to come. So this, having heard last week about the heavenly orientation, this reinforces having our eyes glued upon the mediator of the covenant, our hearts fixed in heaven, and being a heaven-hopeful and heaven-seeking people, heavenly-minded people in the present hour. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, How thankful we are for Christ Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and for all that he has come to secure for his beloved people. O Lord, we look to this hope of heaven and all that is yet to come, having those who are redeemed, having already tasted of its sweetness in part. Give us, we pray, breathless anticipation for drinking it to the full. O Lord, visit us, we ask, with light from heaven, the help of the Spirit, that we would hold fast to the whole counsel of God's Word, not departing to the right hand or to the left, but studying to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Work these things in our souls, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.